Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zaid Yunus and joining me today is Muhammad Isa who runs or leads IFC's Global Venture Capital and Direct Investments Group. Um he's a member of the investment committee and leads a bunch of investment professionals in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, Europe, uh South Asia and East Asia as well. Um and IFC has a bunch of portfolio investments um through direct uh through venture capital funds and direct investments uh, across 30 countries. Um Muhammad has also led technology investments at Gulf Investment Corporation uh which had equal ownership from six Gulf Cooperation Council countries um and he's held operational roles in technology sector in the US um and at Bell Labs New Ventures Group as well Mohammed thank you for taking out the time today and welcome to Pakistanomy I want to start with uh, having you perhaps give us a bit about uh what your outlook is for the global VC space um and what trends are you seeing globally but then also specifically in a country like Pakistan where of course um startups have been attracting a lot of investments but there still seems to be a lot of room for growth first of all thank you Zaid for uh, having me it's uh, it's an honor for uh, us to be talking to you um giving us a platform and opportunity to, to introduce IFC to share with you what we do um and let me first start by saying that you know there's obviously a lot of uh disruption happening right now today in the, in the venture capital community i think if you take a step back and you look at you know what uh, this industry has gone through in terms of cycles it's always been an industry um uh, that is driven by boom and bust um we we tend to sort of allocate capital toward trends and in in times when there's a lot of liquidity you see a lot of you know valuations going up a lot of investors coming in and this is something we experienced obviously with the dot com uh, bubble but more recently of course during the covid era where um there was a lot of money printing there was a lot of global liquidity you know the fed injected a significant amount of capital into the system and frankly in the the period 2020 through 2021 uh was really off the charts in terms of the amount of money going after this industry and valuations uh really became detached from reality so what we're witnessing now of course in 2022 is a reversal um so that bubble is being unwound thanks to uh, two things one obviously the fed is raising interest rates so we've gone from almost zero rates to now almost 5% uh, us treasury rates and of course quantitative tightening where the the fed is really pulling money out of the system uh not to no one's surprise that has obviously removed a lot of uh money and and has sort of limited exits and so we're seeing uh, a massive revaluation in the public tech sec- uh, sector where even the best of the best companies are down 60 70 80% across the board uh we have yet to see that translate across all stages of venture capital uh we're certainly seeing it in some cases for example see that the late stage investments the the vc uh, market there is starting to correct we believe there's more correction because the the disconnect between uh public market valuations and private market valuations are still high so we still think that there's a revaluation that needs to trickle through uh the venture community and and there's a lot of reasons why that isn't as fast as in the public market where things can get revalued instantly 
Um, it has a lot to do with uh, investors um, not necessarily wanting to uh, reprice and mark to market on their portfolio. It also has a lot to do with some companies naturally are performing very, very well and has taken advantage of the past two years to raise a significant amount of money and they feel like they can ride out the storm. So they don't necessarily need to raise money in the short term and can keep their valuation, hoping that in a few years, when the public market uh, open, that the valuation will will be consistent because their growth would, would have supported uh, the valuation. In any case, we, we generally feel um, as an overall view that there's still more uh, you know, challenges to come for the sector. Now, having said that, if you strip away the valuation issue and you purely look at some of the companies in this market, there's still a lot of growth. So e-commerce is growing. You know, the work uh, from home trend because of COVID is something that looks like it's sustainable. sustainable. And so, you know, if you look at some of these companies that, yes, they got repriced, but you look at your, their, where they were in 2018, 2019 to where they are today, they've still grown a lot. And so I think that is a trend that stripping away what's happening in the, in the public market and valuations, uh, we see sustainable trends coming out of um, the past two years because of COVID. So what I would say is a couple of things. I think, yes, it's generally a much harder funding environment. And I would say that, you know, entrepreneurs have to make tough trade-offs today where um, they can either be wedded to the valuation in which they, where they raise money in 2020 and 2021 and ride out the storm if they feel they can do it, but they need to plan for 18 to 24 months of tough times, or they can take this opportunity and say, you know what, I'm going to onboard long-term strategic investors even if it causes me short-term pain in terms of uh, a revaluation and a down round, because ultimately, you know, I'm, a, I'm in this for the long term. I'm still going to build a big business, and the short-term hiccup isn't going to really make a difference. So, we're seeing a lot of these dynamics. Us, you know, for IFC, you know, we've always been disciplined investors. I would say that in 2021, we face a lot of challenges because it, it was a period in which there was no due diligence. Um, you had a lot of investors rush in. Uh, pay outrageous pricing. And we we obviously have a very disciplined due diligence process. Uh, we're not momentum traders. Uh, we believe in building long-term sustainable businesses in emerging markets. And and so we, we passed on a lot of deals because we just couldn't justify the valuation. In a lot of cases, we advised entrepreneurs on the, the pros and cons of taking money at, at high valuations. Some of them... Uh, you can't blame them. Some of them took an opportunity and, and raised money at high valuations. Others were more thoughtful and said, okay, I understand the implications of taking this money at this valuation if there's a downturn and, and they accepted a more reasonable valuation. It's always a trade-off. There's no uh, right or wrong answer because ultimately as an entrepreneur, you always have to make tough decisions based on valuation, timing, when do you raise, how much money you raise, which is also a critical factor. So I think the, the there's going to be tough times, but I think during these times, there's also an opportunity for uh, real companies to be built. We've seen it after the dot-com bubble when companies like Google were built. Um, I think a lot of investors look at this and say, I'd rather have this environment where valuations are low. There's still a lot of tech talent. I can invest in companies at the right price for the next five to seven years, rather than where they were in 2021, where you almost had to 
hold your nose and invest at these prices because you had no alternative. That was just the situation. So we're still very positive on the industry. We're obviously very positive on entrepreneurship in the emerging markets. Uh, we think that one of the important trends that are coming out is a lot of the youth today in emerging markets are no longer looking for jobs in government or big companies. They've they've gone from sort of job seekers to job creators. There's a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of people interested in starting companies. And we, you know, we stand ready to sort of support them in, in all the emerging markets we participate in. Well, a lot of this resonates with me, right? I mean, I've been talking to startups on this podcast. We did at the Atlantic Council, a state of an affairs analysis for the Pakistan ecosystem and heard similar things. Almost this idea that, you know, even Pakistan in 2020, 21 saw the impact of the liquidity, right? That you were just talking about. Um, and, and now you've had, and then you had as a result of that, for example, something like airlift happened where yeah. the company burned a lot of cash and, 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 you know, just burned its way through that capital and is no longer with us anymore. But yeah. then a lot of entrepreneurs that I speak to, and you, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've had the same impact, uh, experience that you know, entrepreneurs now are talking about growth with discipline. Right. In, in terms of what are the fundamental building blocks? How do we set ourselves up for the long term? Uh, because the opportunity is there, the attitude shift is sticking. And I would just add to your point also that the big layoffs we're seeing at places like Twitter, Facebook, uh, Stripe, et cetera. All of that will insert more talent into the market, which is exactly. good for entrepreneurship right, uh, and startups, because the supply issues we were seeing are going to go away, the crazy high rates, et cetera, all of that will also begin to ease up a bit as this talent in, enters the market. Um, from the IFC's perspective or from your even personal perspective, right? why is venture capital important for a country like Pakistan or an emerging market? Sure. Right? H- help the audience understand like what role does it play? And if you look at a market in particular like Pakistan that is basically a rent-seeking economy with big players sort of cordoning off the market. Um, what role does VC or what role can VC play in terms of shifting the or disrupting this economy? Sure. Uh, let me first address your comment about um, airlift because I, I attended the 92 Disrupt um, conference in, in uh, Pakistan um, last month. And this issue came up. And I want to I want to say two points about it. The first is, um, I got a sense that there was a lot of uh, shock factor that people were genuinely concerned that this was going to, to destroy the VC market in in uh, Pakistan and really make investors um, think twice about investing in Pakistan. You know, and I told this to the the audience and the participants. I said, well, the first thing is this is not unique to Pakistan. Um, in every emerging market, at every uh, cycle, we see companies failing. In fact, if you look at the number of companies that were started in, in Pakistan, uh, th- based on the natural order of, the, of venture capital, where six out of 10 companies you invest in would fail, two would just do okay, and, 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 and the other two would do fantastic, in a way, we should have seen more failures, right? Because this is sort of a unique outlier in which we had one big failure. So this is not a cause for concern. I think. The and let me add something there. Genuine... Let me add something there as well on, on the more failure part. They, we should have expected that because there were a lot of other companies raising a lot of money that perhaps they shouldn't Correct. have been raising. Correct. So that's the first thing. So this is not unique, and I think, in a way, as you mentioned, we should have seen more. And 
I think it will potentially scare off uh, the the what I would say the hot money, the sort of venture capital firms that were created overnight who were just playing momentum. Those are not you know uh, longstanding sustainable uh, partners. You want to partner with people who know the cycle, who can stomach ups and downs. The second thing is I think not knowing you know a lot of the details of of the airlift saga, but. I do know from some of the things that I've learned about how this company started in Pakistan and then expanded into South Africa because they had raised a lot of money. And we see this a lot in emerging markets where you know, investors who are not from the region, uh, if you raise money for, say, from the US to invest in Nigeria or some of these other countries, you always get this pressure to you know, expand across multiple countries from day one. So before you have a chance to dominate your home market, become profitable, prove your unit economics, you raise money from investors or from outside the region and they immediately put pressure on you to sort of expand. Almost thinking that, for example, expanding from Pakistan to South Africa or Nigeria to Kenya and South Africa is very much similar to starting in California and expanding to Texas or Florida. Every These are countries with unique dynamics, regulatory environment, competitors, so, you know, it's always um, a warning sign for us for a company that's in early stages of growth that wants to dominate five countries from day one. That's not necessarily a winning formula. And there's a lot of execution risk. So I would say it's it's also a lesson in terms of raising money from the right partners to understand emerging markets. But definitely it did not for us um, uh, temper our interest in the Pakistani VC market by by any uh, any regards, and in fact, we are, you know, preparing to do even more. So, in the you know, for us, the way we look at the market is, and we look at this for all emerging markets. When we look at a market, we say, look, where is it in its you know in, you know development in terms of the ecosystem? If it's in the nascent stage, so early stage, we tend to come in and invest with, with uh, accelerators, and we have a program called Catalyst where we look for partners to set up incubators and accelerators. So early stage companies where they need a lot of a lot of handholding, guidance. And so getting them ready so that at a certain point stage, they're ready for venture capital. They're not ready today. So we have a program and a pool of money dedicated specifically for accelerators and incubators. And we encourage other uh, investors from outside to come in. So our role also is to mobilize more capital. Then we look and say, okay, Given that these companies are now looking for VC funding, we then invest in funds. So we look for VC fund partners. So in fact, across emerging markets, we have relationships with over 200 fund managers in emerging markets. So these are partners that we rely on to uh, invest at the Series A level and the seed level. At IFC, we tend to come in at the Series B, but we work hand in hand with the fund managers to help the ecosystem get to the next phase, we also co-invest, um, so we rely on these VC fund managers to generate pipeline for us, you know, fund investments that we can come in and lead for the second round in Series B. And then later on, um, after we come in with the B and C, we also invest in private equity firms. So once this company really gets so large, state needs growth capital, we also fund uh, private equity firms. And then beyond that, as you think about companies going to exit, um, our mainstream IFC team, which is the non-venture capital uh, uh, team, is pretty large. So there we, we provide debt capital to pretty much almost every sector in emerging markets. So think of hospitals, manufacturing firms, airports, 
we come in and provide debt facilities. So if a company came out of Pakistan, let's say in the agri sector or a hospital sector in healthcare, as it grows and, and goes from venture capital, private equity, at some point needs debt capital potentially to go IPO, we can also come in and lend that institution a lot of money. And so we feel like we have the most broad, complete product set for supporting innovation from the seed stage all the way to exit. That's fascinating. And uh, I mean, the the initial experience I remember growing up from the IFC sort of legendary case studies, right, was Engro um, in terms of the IFC's role with that and, and, and that being a conglomerate that every Pakistani is now familiar with. Um, so uh, I, I really like this approach of starting with on the angel accelerator side, handholding, getting that pipeline ready, and then really through different products and services, um, taking them through or taking the most promising of these companies through to IPO um, and, and, and really investing long-term in, in, in the ecosystem itself. Because if you're looking at that long-term horizon all the way through IPO, you're going to not do the types of things that, you know, the momentum VCs do, which is, hey, Correct. expand into Nigeria or from Nigeria, go to Kenya, because that's not the right way to do business. Um, <clears throat> given this role that that the IFC has, um, obviously, Pakistan is not a super mature market. It only got on the map even globally, I would say, in the last 24 months, 36 months or so. Much of that had to do with COVID and the liquidity that we already talked about. But it is a very interesting and exciting space. And the conversations I have um, about the country on this podcast, the most uh, refreshing, uplifting ones are related to the VC ecosystem, right? Startups right. disrupting the status quo. Um, so what is the IFC looking to do in Pakistan in this space? You were, as you said, recently in Pakistan as well. And I know the IFC is looking to build up across the board a lot of its capabilities in Pakistan. It has been a key enabler of the, these types of investments um, in the country, as I mentioned, Engro, uh, for a number of years. So in the VC space, what are you looking to do? What excites you? And what are perhaps some of the things that you would like to see Pakistan do more of to make your job easier? Sure. So the first thing is you shouldn't be surprised there because Pakistan as a country is a story of resilience. If you look at what the country has accomplished over the past you know, 70 years, I mean, you take a look, for example, in, in agriculture, right? You know, this country went from um, a calorie deficit. So it had it didn't have enough food to feed its own people in, in 70 years ago. Today, you know, if you look at just some of the statistics that were published by the Ministry of Finance, you know, look at, you know, wheat production, look at cotton, look at sugarcane, look at rice. These are all, uh, you know, outputs that have gone by ATAX. I mean, if you look at, you know, just I'm reading some of the stats, uh, you know, over the weekend, wheat has gone up from 3.4 million in 1948 to 26.4 million, you know, in 2021. Cotton up ATAX, sugar king from 5.5 million to 88.7 million and so on and so on, right? So look at GDP, GDP per capita where it was 70 years uh, ago compared to today. It's $1,798. It used to be $86. And so the story is not surprising because the people themselves want to do better. And the country itself, despite many challenges, internal and external, has really uplifted itself into you know, the top 50 in terms of largest economies in the world. And again, despite a number of challenges, look at literacy where it was uh, 70 years ago, it was 16%, today it's 60%. So when you look at the, the growth of the middle class, 
um, the, the digital literacy, the entrepreneurs, the, the young, uh, you know, demographics, we're not really surprised. And all of these are KPIs that make it an attractive market for IFC to participate in. We want to come in and solve a couple of problems. First, I think the venture capital community and the venture capital industry in Pakistan is underrepresented. If you look at the population, if you look at how much VC dollars Pakistan attracts to some of its neighbors, it's you know very, very low um, and it should be much, much higher. And we, we see our role, not just IFC coming in with our investment, but we see our role to mobilize both other development institutions as well as international investors. So our role first and foremost is to provide more capital to the venture community. And again, look at it holistically and say, we need to participate at the early stage with accelerators and incubators. We need to do more in terms of funding, venture capital fund, funds that are local, as well as the foreign ones that want to enter Pakistan. And then we want to do more direct investment across a certain set of sectors. So we are thematic investors. So I should have mentioned that we don't just invest in funds. We actually invest in direct startups ourselves. In fact, we actually want to lean more toward, you know, doing more direct rather than fund of funds. And so, you know, we look and say, look, there's massive opportunities to solve the global calorie deficit. You know, by 2050, the world is going to have a 50% calorie deficit, which means we don't have enough food. Part of it is because, you know, agriculture is difficult. We're running out of uh, agriculture, land, uh, water uh, crisis is becoming an issue across the world. Um, and then, you know, farming is difficult. Um, it's very difficult to attract the younger generation into farming. A lot of the farmers are getting older. So that's all contributing to the calorie deficit. So cal so agri-tech is a very important sector for us. Uh, healthcare is, uh, is another big one because, again, with the population growing, access to affordable healthcare is very, very important. Right? So these two are very important sectors. Climate obviously is a very, very big one, impacts all uh, emerging markets and developed markets. It's a global problem. Um, and then of course, e-commerce, the natural evolution in a lot of emerging markets we, we see this always is, it starts with e-commerce, e-commerce then you know gives birth to payments and FinTech. And from there you develop into B2B, you develop into logistics and supply chains. And so the digital transformation of supply chains and distribution channels is a very important one. They all sort of head toward how do we, the common problem is how do we actually provide more working capital to SMEs? So unlocking credit for SMEs is very, very important. It touches on the point you made earlier, which is how do you compete with uh, large family businesses and entrenched competitors that may dominate um, certain industries? You know, one of the biggest problems is to enable startups and SMEs to tap into working capital and credit facilities because they face a natural barrier in competing with some of these large entrenched players. So even if you have an innovation in terms of a tech advantage and you can move faster, you still need to access credit and funding to, to be able to grow. We think that one way is obviously coming in with equity as venture investors. The other way is to enable embedded finance and work with our uh, you know financial institutions to provide more credit to, to SMEs. But you know, really overall, uh, we are looking for entrepreneurs to um, raise their hands to come up with good ideas and then we can come in and support them i would say you know the other factor in pakistan to consider is we also have a gender specific focus where we want to actually support women in tech 
Um, we think that gender balanced teams, actually, we've done a study on this across all of emerging markets and investments. We have found that actually gender balanced management teams and gender balanced startups tend to do much better in terms of performance, IRRs, valuations. And so this shouldn't just be a story of men in tech. It should be you know, also encouraging women to come in and create companies. And we're ready to support them as well. That's fascinating. And again, like, I mean, from my perspective, right, having the IFC or using that halo effect to attract other international investors into this market is perhaps, you know, super important in the sense that, you know, all the things you mentioned, e-commerce leading to fintech, leading to uh, logistics innovation, logistics is then connected with agriculture and agri-tech, which you've already mentioned is a priority. Um, the food security point you mentioned in Pakistan, for example, I think because the median age of the country is 24, the majority wasn't even born when the country became a nuclear power. Don't even exactly. remember back in the 50s, the country was food insecure and used to get wheat uh, through USAID, right? And it was really yep. a partnership between the United States and Pakistan that built the big dams, built the irrigation systems and the corral networks and the seeds um, that made the country food secure. And again, uh, we need something like that uh, happening, given the floods and everything else associated with it. There's talk of a green alliance, et cetera. Um, and all of that ultimately needs capital. Without capital, Correct. the innovation cannot happen. Um, on the Pakistan side, when you look at that, obviously, population, middle class, younger people, all of this is attractive, low base, a lot to, a lot of headroom to grow and disrupt things. What are some areas where perhaps you look at and say, you know what, Pakistan ought to do something uh, about these issues, given the fact that it wants to mature and attract more dollars? I'll give you my own example that I've heard, for sure. example, right, which is the SECP. And these are all, again, small mundane things that create barriers. The SECP still requires, my understanding is, a uh, corporate address for a startup. And it's like, well, if you're running it out of your mom's, uh, your parents' room, well, what's the what's the address? And B, they require things like, you know, the name of the company must match uh, what you do. So an Apple could never be registered in Pakistan because what does Correct. Apple have to do with computing? Well, again, I'm, I'm bringing these facetious issues to the table because they're small and minor, but there are bigger challenges as well. Some of them, we must give credit to um, uh, the SECP and the State Bank and other policymakers to really uh, make a dent there. Um, in terms of, you know, access to uh, or the structure in terms of Amsterdam, Singapore, the issues that used to be there, et cetera. But from your vantage point, uh, what are things that need to still happen to really turbocharge what essentially is now building into a very good ecosystem of investment startups, et cetera, still has a lot of room to grow? How do we accelerate that momentum? I think so. The, the, when we looked at the emerging markets and our experience, and we have the vantage point of pattern matching and seeing what you know ecosystems do well versus others, I'll just say just a couple of lessons. Um, the eco, the VC ecosystems that then tend to thrive are ones where you have all the stakeholders participating: government, private sector, entrepreneurs, academic institutions, all driving toward a common goal. So what I would say is we need a champion in Pakistan, somebody who's going to really be the chief, let's say, digital officer of the country. It's a role that organizes a lot of these industry players into one. So from the government, what you ideally want to see, and we've seen it really work very well, is to allocate more capital in terms of seed funding and also look through all the regulatory 
frameworks you have, all the legal structure, are they really optimized to encourage venture capital and startups and entrepreneurs? And there's a lot of you know uh, optimization that could happen to create room for this industry to grow. And I think so the government taking active stake and making sure that it can not just provide access to capital, but to look at tax reforms, look at regulation, look at what are the things that encourage foreign investors to come into this market, right? And look, you can do a best, pra- look at the best practices of what has happened in other countries, what they've done. You can mirror this. It's not very difficult. And if you really believe in championing this industry, you can do it. The other thing is from the private sector, I, I think there should be more involvement. So, you know, if you look at like, some of the offline, large offline players, right? They're not going to be the ones that, you know, innovate from a digital point of view or a tech point of view, right? But they can encourage these innovators to come in and help solve some of the inefficiencies in these businesses and giving them access and channel and room to grow, whether it's supply chains, distribution channels. You can you can basically, there's a win-win here where these offline players can outsource some of the business to the, the startups and in doing so become more efficient, but at the same time, you encourage more innovation that you can't really actually do and really it will come out of entrepreneurs. As if for entrepreneurs, what they have to do is just come up with good ideas. I think you, uh, you, you. There's a lot of talent, um, both from a tech point of view. There's an interest point of view. I think you need to just basically continue to like, you know, push forward and come up with good ideas. The the other piece of this is I think what I really would like to see is the Pakistani diaspora, the Pakistanis who have gone, for example, to the U.S. and have done really, really well. We need to. We want them to see. Give you know. Give more time. You know, mentoring, investing. Uh, if there's a company in Pakistan that is a SaaS business and wants to expand to the U.S., they should be able to call somebody in the U.S., somebody who's working at a Google or Snowflake or Microsoft, and say, "Hey, I've come up with this innovation. Can you open some doors for me? Can you give me access or give me access to some of the procurement people because I want to pitch my idea." We want to see that sort of synergy between local entrepreneurs and the ones who have left and done well in the U.S. and Europe and the rest of the world. It's very important for the diaspora to continue to want to give back both in time, investment, resources, and so on. We're going to do our part in terms of just want our own capital, but we're definitely going to encourage other um, DFIs as well as other fund partners, institutional investors at large to come in and invest in the country. Yeah, I fully agree on the role of diaspora. And I think that that initially has been the first sort of uh, thrust or they've been at the vanguard of mobilizing a lot of the initial round of capital. Park Launch, for example, is a group that comes to my mind. They've organized conferences, mm-hmm. webinars, et cetera, not just between uh, the US and Pakistan, because that Silicon Valley seems to be their base, but in different corridors, right? Indonesia, Nigeria, Pakistan, et cetera. Um, and again, sure. that globalization of that ecosystem and integration is super important, um, not only for capital in my perspective, but also lessons learned, right? Again, you may not want to grow from Pakistan to South Africa or Nigeria because they're different, but you can look at sure. other experiences on the policy right. realm, on the innovation realm, et cetera. Um, what specifically is the IFC now on the VC side or your team looking uh, to do in Pakistan, given the opportunities on offer? And again, I ask this question because we're sort of in sure. this global tech. We've talked about this, right? Winter, there's a crypto winter, there's a tech winter. The Fed has basically made capital more expensive. Um, but that, again, is 
uh, flushing out sort of the folks who are in there for momentum and bringing in more strategic voices into the room. Um, You, of course, are, uh, as the IFC is highly respected globally in Pakistan, in particular, given Pakistan's positive experiences with the IFC. So what is the strategy moving forward? Uh, Where are you looking to, uh, you know, make specific uh, investments or, or uh, uh, you know, sure. interventions in the Pakistani market, and and where would you, where would we begin to see the IFC play a bigger role moving forward? Sure. So we um, we have been tracking this market for a number of years, and in fact, I mentioned to you when when we went to um, the conference in uh, last month in '92, disrupt. It was really to sort of solidify our pipeline. Um, so we have a pipeline now of. Uh, accelerators, venture funds, and direct investments that we are conducting due diligence on because we want to invest. So we have already internally allocated a pool of capital, um, specifically earmarked for Pakistan. That's going to be announced in in two weeks. Um, And that is something that is near term. And so if everything goes well, and of course, everything's subject to due diligence, but if everything goes well, we will invest in an accelerator. We will invest in uh, one to two venture funds. And ideally, we'd invest in two to three direct investments in the next year. That's our you know, ultimate goal for Pakistan. And that would be the start. You know, that'll just get us you know, into the market so that we can learn a little bit more and then open up other sectors and continue to invest. This is not a one-time thing for IFD. This is a long-term commitment. We want to develop the venture capital ecosystem in the country. And we want to invest in Pakistani businesses and help them both grow inside Pakistan and eventually, once they've proven the business model, expand. That's ultimately our goal. That's amazing. And again, I'm guessing the thematic areas are going to be the same that you've already mentioned, right? In terms of ag tech, healthcare, logistics, things like that. Exactly. And but but I'd say what I've really been impressed with, and, and this also is is the balancing is we've met some incredible entrepreneurs who may not necessarily have been in sectors that we thought about. But they're just incredibly talented, thoughtful. And, you know, in initial pass, you think of the idea, you're like, this doesn't work. But when you sit down and talk to the entrepreneurs, you understand how they systematically thought about the problem from the ground up and have solved each part of the value chain. And you come back and say, I don't care about the sector. I want to invest in that guy or that woman because they're so talented, they're going to solve it. And I think this is what really exciting for me is I've just met some incredible entrepreneurs in, in the visits I've had in Pakistan. Yeah, no, it, it's been uh, my experience. I it would resonate uh, with what you just described. In fact, the, the the thing that you mentioned, right, that in emerging markets, there's been a shift. Um, like when I was growing up, my brother, who's eight years older than I am, his generation wanted to be doctors, engineers, or go into the bureaucracy, right? Uh, oh. My generation, we all wanted to be investment bank, not all, but most of us wanted to be right. investment bankers or go work at Standard Chartered in Pakistan or at right. Agro or something <laughs> else, right? But now when I look at the Gen Z or uh, the more recent grads coming out, um, they want to be entrepreneurs. They want to sort of own right. their own thing. And I think this is an amazing shift in culture in Pakistan um, because South Asians generally, you know, were taught that failure is not good. If you fail yeah. at something, you you have the, you carry that taboo, which is the case in East Asia and parts of Africa too, which holds back innovation. But now you have a newer generation that is realizing that it's okay to fail. Uh, you should be job creators and innovators. Um, and the more we propel that ecosystem, I think 
um, the more the economy will grow and be more efficient and productive because again, uh, the big sort of groups that have cornered the market don't really have an incentive to innovate, which makes sense because they dominate that space. So if you, you want to right. be hungry, you have the only way through is innovation. No, completely agree. And when I graduated from MIT, the, the big uh, you know objective was, can I get a job at Microsoft or Intel? And the people who are not techies wanted to just go work for a consulting firm or investment banks. That, that was it. Nobody went into startups because that's, you know, there's too much risk. You're going to fail. You know, it, it's not really what, uh, we all strive to achieve. Now it's the exact opposite. And I'll just say on this issue, in some countries in the emerging market, we've seen governments be so proactive to change this cultural shift from risk being a bad thing rather than you know risk being a, 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 something you encourage and good things will come out of it, whether the company fails or not. And so we've seen countries, for example, provide uh, risk capital to fund really early stage seed companies and they've structured it in a way where they provide a loan to these seed companies. If the company succeeds, right, they just get to pay back the loan. If the company fails, right, they forgive the loan. So, it, so to encourage you to take risk and not to be thinking about the downside. And so if you fail because you, you, know, you got outcompeted or the market changed, that's fine. You still tried and you can go on to the next thing. And if you succeed, they're not going to take a big lion's share of your business. They're just going to say, pay me back the loan. That changes the cultural shift from, I have a good idea, but I'm not too afraid because I'm going to give up this lucrative job to, I have really no downside. And so now I can focus on executing rather than the trauma of what happens if I, if I somehow fail. So that's why when the airlift uh, situation came up and a lot of people discussed it at the conference, I said, you need to forget about this and think about why it failed and learn not to repeat the same mistakes. So it is not going to cause a stigma to the market. This is just a point in time where a company misexecuted and the market changed, and that happens all the time. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And 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 on the Pakistan side, the you know, I'm excited by your perspective on the market and, and what the IFC is looking to do. The couple of things that I was sort of also would love, you already mentioned one, which is focusing on women entrepreneurs. Pakistan's yes. women labor force participation is super low. Opportunity and capital is hard to come by. Just opening a bank account for a woman in Pakistan is a terrible exactly. experience, right? So that, again, is a disruption opportunity because you can't just leave half of the market underserved the way Pakistani financial institutions do. Um, this, the second point really quickly on this um, is that we've also seen this tendency that opportunity across the board gets uh, captured by a very narrow segment of privileged people. I, I myself being one of them going to Karachi Grammar School, um, you have Grammar, Atchison, Lums, IBA crowd. The, 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 the monikers will become common to you if not already. I see you smiling, so I'm guessing you're familiar I'm with smi that. <laughs> I'm, smi I'm smiling because all of my MIT colleagues from Pakistan were grammarians. There you go. Exactly. So, so we need to change that, right? We need people yeah. and, and entrepreneurs coming out of the University of Karachi or the University of Punjab right. or Peshawar University, etc. Um, and I think, again, I fully understand when an ecosystem is starting, the, the you need trusted people, you need people who communicate 
uh, well, et cetera. And that often happens to be the ones who went to the best schools, but we also need to make sure that this access to capital and opportunity percolates down into the ecosystem, into parts of the country that are as innovative and youth is as innovative and entrepreneurial, but perhaps may not have the initial network to connect. Um, and again, we need to invest in that because that really is where if you get a big bang outcome there in terms of attitude shifts and more entrepreneurs coming out, um, then that really changes the full nature and scope of this economy. And, and I think we need to create opportunities I, there. You know, one of the one of the pleasant examples we've seen in, in emerging markets to, that sort of supports your point is, you know, you take some of the countries that were kind of considered very tech rich, you know, really male dominated. And some of the best investments we've seen there were by women in a very non-tech idea. So a great example is Mama Earth, which is a company that was founded to provide natural baby products like so shampoos, soaps for infants. It was started by mother who wanted to make sure that, you know, kids have access to quality, you know, shampoos and soaps and products that are not that were sort of free of sort of toxins and so forth. That's not a tech idea, right? But it's just a big idea where you have a core set of users that are very motivated, passionate about this, started with somebody who's a woman who's not a techie, right? And has done really, really well. So good ideas don't have to come from grammarians or MIT people or Harvard or Stanford. It, a good idea is a good idea. You need somebody who can identify an unmet need, and then you just need to find them and support them. And this is why, in the case of Pakistan, we have the accelerators to sort of help people who don't necessarily know how to communicate to investors, write a business plan, but we can still nurture them and help them develop their ideas slowly, find a partner, co-founder, investor, and, and sort of slowly build up that idea to get to a venture stage. I think people just have to understand also from the venture community as a VC fund, you can't just like replicate what's happening in Silicon Valley in places like Pakistan or some other emerging market. Every market has its unique dynamics of culture, you know, our culture in sort of the, let's say the, the Pakistan, Arab and and so forth uh, areas, we're not necessarily very boastful, right? We don't really know how to sort of, you know, really be marketers in terms of like how great we are. It's part of the culture being yeah. conservative. That's such an important right? point that, that sorry to interrupt you here, but we're actually yeah. taught to be humble, right? Like a boastful exactly. person is not considered good in society and, and right. they're full of considered full of hot air, even though they may Ex be the most accomplished one, you actually have to remain very humble about what you achieve. That's right. And so if you don't understand the culture, then you may think, okay, well, this person isn't confident, but they are, it's just that that's not their culture to sort of be outspoken about it. So whereas different, if you grew up in New York, in you know Manhattan, you got the New York attitude, right? Where you're very boastful and arrogant and confident. So you have to understand the market you participate in and be able to nurture the entrepreneurs coming out of that market. We understand this because obviously we, we see a lot across the emerging market. You know, we are part of the World Bank Group, so we understand emerging markets really, really well and cultures and societies and so forth. And to your point about, you know, women, on this specific issue, the World Bank actually stepped in and helped change the regulation in Pakistan so that women can register companies without necessarily their father co-signing or their brother co-signing or their uncle co-signing. So we're trying to do everything from a regulatory point of view, point of view to, to create a fair chance for women to participate as well.
Yeah, and I think uh, the best, I think, mobilizer of that talent will be if we get fintechs making it easier to open bank accounts and make payments easier. Um, I think that will change yeah. a whole lot. That plus, and, and this is, again, my pet peeve with, on the government side is that, you know, as you said earlier, it's not rocket science to replicate good policy. It exists around the yeah. world. Um, and in the case of Pakistan, the two sort of lowest hanging fruit from a policy intervention point of view is expand access to broadband internet. Um, that changes Absolutely. lives directly. Um, and it, I think the Bad Labs estimate was something like 6 billion is needed to expand that network uh, at this point in time. But let's even assume it's 10 billion. It's not a whole lot of money for an economy sure. like Pakistan. Um, and then secondly, we already talked about this financial inclusion, make access to bank accounts and digital payments easier that actually creates the incentives for digitizing and modernizing and formalizing the economy, uh, which for 30 odd years, I've seen successive governments in Pakistan fail at because they're approaching it from the stick approach, right? Which is document yeah. or else. Um, and tech allows you to create the incentive that says the customer is demanding you have a QR code, um, the, not the yeah. policymaker for the FPR, for example. Um, Mohammed, exactly. this has been... A fascinating conversation. Um, I am really excited by what you, your team, and the IFC at large is looking to do in Pakistan. As, as I've repeated several times, um, that bottom-up disruption is going to create uh, a more dynamic economy in Pakistan. And so wish you and your team all the best. And before I let you go, um, this is a favorite question of mine and of the audience. Uh, <laughs> please share two to three books that you would recommend uh, that folks pick up and read. Sure. So two two of them actually are, um, th so the three books are very different. So the first one, obviously, and it's always my long-term favorite, is the autobiography of, of Muhammad Ali. And uh, for a lot of reasons, I think the most important uh, lessons for me in that book is, um, you know, to have the strength of character to understand your surroundings and the magnitude of the times in terms of the civil rights era, being an African-American, being a Muslim in that environment, and to still make tough decisions about standing behind your principle at the expense of your career. Um, to me, he is not just an athlete, but obviously a hero and, and in terms of the, the challenges he had to overcome. But more importantly, the awareness of sort of who he was and where he was and the times, I think, was really um, an incredible story. Uh, more, more recently, I've read a book called Deep Simpl Simplicity by uh, John Gribben. Uh, I'm a technologist by background, so it, I thought it was an interesting uh, story about the relationship between order, chaos, and complexity. So he takes a look at sort of how things in nature tend to be at a micro level, very simple, but at a macro level, you know, chaos gets introduced, but there's a duality between chaos and simplicity. It sort of helped me look at certain things like, you know, astrophotography and, and the universe and so forth in a different lens. So it's maybe a, a bit of a techie. Uh, book, but I thought it was pretty interesting. The book I'm currently reading right now is actually related to the, one of the investment themes that we have, which is the whole agri-tech and uh, the water crisis. It's, actually, it's a, a book called A Path Forward for Sharing the Nile Water. As you as you may imagine, you know the, the dispute between Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia about the Nile is um, not just about water, it's about agriculture, it's about politics. Uh, it's uh, written by a professor at MIT called Professor Al-Tahir, and he actually proposes a different structure to resolving it, where he addresses the climate change, the agricultural side, the, the use of water, and the cooperation among countries. It could serve as a really 
interesting model to, so to solve the water crisis that's going to happen across different parts of the world because we are running out of water. And so the Nile is sort of a test case for finding a solution of cooperation, but also in terms of tech investments to solve the underlying causes of water usage. So I thought it was a fascinating kind of book that sort of introduces tech innovation as well as you know ways you can cooperate with your neighbors for a common good. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I, I'm going to add that definitely to my list because it's something that increasingly I've been thinking about and, and trying to get a sense of is from policymakers on the India-Pakistan side, right, is that right. climate change does not care about the line of control. The it weather does it not, doesn't. the smog does not. It's smog season right. right now in Delhi. It's smog season in Lahore. And guess what? Um, countries, both countries will have to find ways to cooperate with the coming yeah. climate catastrophe because a heat wave in Indian Punjab is going to affect the wheat crop as much Absolutely. as it will affect in Pakistani Punjab. And we've seen the floods today. Uh, this year it was Gilgit, yeah. Pakistan and Sindh. Uh, tomorrow it could be the Ganges, right? And and we don't Absolutely. We all have to be prepared. So thank you for that recommendation in particular. Um, and on Ali, um, you know, I, I've been watching FIFA Uncovered uh, on Netflix these past few days because yeah. the World Cup is coming up. And, you know, when you raised his book and, and the awareness and the ability to situate yourself uh, where you were in that moment in time, uh, very few athletes do. I think that yeah. obviously is an inspiration to many um, who, you know, when they take a stand, they talk about growing up watching Ali do that, right? So uh, maybe uh, we are to celebrate him a lot more than perhaps we do because a lot of people, especially in countries like Pakistan, know him as an athlete, but don't fully understand where he was in that moment in time and what he was Correct. looking to accomplish, right? So thank you for that as well. And uh, thank you again for your time and would love to uh, see you and have you back on the podcast again. And in the meantime, best of luck with everything you're doing globally and especially in Pakistan. It's Uzair, thank you. It's been uh, my distinct pleasure to to join you, to talk to you about IFC, what we want to do. I would just say Pakistan is a very resilient country, resilient culture. The people are amazing and we want to partner and be the trusted supporter of entrepreneurs in Pakistan. We look forward to investing more. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.